Welcome to Without the Footnotes, Not Your Typical Holocaust Lecture, with me, your host, Estherini. On this week's episode, I'll be talking about the Third Reich. Hi friends, and welcome to the fourth episode of Without the Footnotes, Not Your Typical Holocaust Lecture. Um, I realised today that as I'm recording the fourth episode, that means that this podcast has has been out for a month now, and I have no idea where the time's gone. But I guess it's quite fitting for this year because in 2020, time doesn't mean anything. (laughs) Um, So yeah, that might be a milestone. It might not be, but here we are. Um, So this week I thought I'd switch up a bit and I actually have some guests on this week. So it's two friends that I worked with last year in the Innovation Hub in Israel, which is where I slash we actually developed this project and I thought in order to understand the Third Reich that it would be a good idea to know a bit about the first and the second. So I have my friend Kim who's the founder of Cafe Australia. Um, She will speak about the first the First Reich and then my friend Eva who is the founder of Voids that will then speak about the second one. After that, after they've given a bit of an overview, I'll then talk about the Third Reich and then um, when that's all done, I'll tell you a little bit more about their projects, which are also super interesting. And you'll be able to find them on Instagram and take a look at what they're doing. So yeah, so without me rambling on too much, let's just get into it. Okay, so Kim, can you tell me or ask how the first Reich helps us understand the third one? Okay, Esther, um, <laughs> I'm going to try. I know you can do it. So what I think is really interesting just to know about the first Reich, um, first of all, is that at the time that this so-called first Reich or empire, German empire was in existence, you know, no one in it would have referred to it as the First Reich. This idea of the German Reichs really came about in the 1920s and then Hitler heard about it and he was really into it. And so what he did was try to promote this idea of a Third Reich or a Third German Empire as a really logical successor to the two that came before. Oh. Yeah, so if we're thinking about the first one, mm. um which you might otherwise have heard of it referred to as the Holy Roman Empire, mm-hmm. which again is really confusing because how can it be a Roman Empire in Germany? And is that a different thing to the ancient Roman Empire like gladiators? So yeah, it is. <laughs> um, and I'll explain, but to explain the Holy Roman Empire, we have to explain one of my favorite <laughs> historical figures a man named Charlemagne oh I've heard about him before (laughs) was it from me yes (laughs) yeah so yeah I just want to explain a little bit about Charlemagne um because I mean he's an important figure in European history but also also comes up again in the um Third Reich in the Nazi period so this guy Charlemagne right he's living around he's born in like the mid 700s we're not sure where probably somewhere in Belgium 
Um, and Charlemagne is very cool, I think, because even today he's considered by a lot of people to be the father of Europe, quote unquote. Um, and that's a pretty impressive title, I know, yeah. but I'm going to tell you why I think that in a way is, is justified. So Charlemagne inherited what was then called a kingdom of Francia. So like a lot of modern day France, really, and some other bits. He inherited this from his dad, who was also a king of Francia. And this kingdom was split up between Charlemagne and his brother. Then his brother sort of mysteriously died. And suddenly Charlemagne <laughs> is in charge of this really awesome kingdom. So imagine like a lot of France, some of Germany, the Netherlands, Belgium, this kind of area. And so Charlemagne has this idea might sound sort of uh, familiar, that he wants to unite all the Germanic peoples into one kingdom. Okay. And he also wants to convert everyone to a particular way of thinking, mm -hmm. only the thing he was trying to convert people to was uh, Christianity. Right. Because remember, this is like the 8th century, so not everyone is Christian and there's still a lot of barbarian tribes about the place um, and there's a lot of fighting all across Europe. So he takes like northern Italy, Austria, Hungary, Bavaria, like lots of lands in central Europe um, and he really consolidates his kingdom and he spends like 30 years fighting the Saxons. You've ever heard of this like Germanic tribe? They're pagan, they're really vicious and he finally subdues them as well. And then Charlemagne, very importantly, becomes the first emperor in Western Europe since the fall of the Roman Empire. So since like the gladiator empire that we do know mm -hmm. that well europe was in chaos charlemagne comes along and he's the first person to really unite this part of europe again to like western europe and the reason he becomes an emperor is because he has so much power he's obviously a real friend to the church right he's spreading christianity everywhere and the popes, meanwhile, are like still down in Rome, like battling to hold this little territory when the rest of, of Italy has kind of fallen. Um, and so they're like, oh, you know who's really good for us? This guy, Charlemagne, because he protects us. So they're like, we'll scratch your back if you scratch ours sort of thing. And in exchange for protection of the church, uh, this guy, Pope Leo III, he crowns Charlemagne emperor of the romans in the year 800 in st peter's basilica so if you've ever been to rome you might not have noticed it but it's like right when you walk into st peter's on the floor i think just a bit to the right there's like a red circle on the ground because that's the spot where supposedly charlemagne was crowned emperor in okay the year i've never been there so i don't okay. know <laughs> maybe something I mean, I obviously knew in advance, so I was looking out for it. But it's just a spot on the floor. But yeah. anyway, yeah, it's kind of cool. Um, so that's why this sort of Germanic empire-like group of kingdoms that we talk about when we talk about the Holy Roman Empire, that's why it's Roman, because it's like the Roman church gave the authority to this emperor to preside over a bunch of Germans. I mean, okay. I'm still not sure it makes sense, but that's the Holy Roman part of it. Oh, right, okay. I know really confusing for a lot of people um so so yeah so this is kind of the beginning some people argue some people say that the holy roman empire didn't start until 962 with like another guy who unified everything but that's just sort of a boring historian's debate like either way charlemagne and the year sort of 800 is kind of the beginning of what will eventually be this thing called the holy roman empire that's going to last for a thousand years until Napoleon 
ruins it. <laughs> okay. He does. He ruined it. He ruined it going all across Europe and trying to take over everything. Um, and um, interestingly, he was also a big fan of Charlemagne. He was very inspired by him. So Charlemagne becomes this kind of figure that a lot of later crazy <laughs> dictators or guys who want to fight a lot of wars, they sort of look back to and refer to him because it's sort of this nostalgia, like this time when this man, one man ruled over so much of Europe. Right. Okay. So, so was Hitler a fan of Charlemagne? So Charlemagne and the Nazis is kind of interesting um, because there's a couple of kind of um, contradictory things. So it appears that Hitler was a fan to the best of my knowledge, I should say, I'm certainly not an expert, but it appears that Hitler was a fan in the sense that he was like, yep, this guy had a huge chunk of Europe. He united Germanic peoples, which we know, you know, Hitler was really about. Um, and, and he was impressed with Charlemagne, I suppose, his sort of efficiency and just the way in which he, he conquered so many people and achieved mm -hmm. so much. Um, but there was this one kind of incident. So, you know, I mentioned before Charlemagne, um, for these Saxons for like 30 years and Saxons were obviously also a Germanic tribe. And so there was this period in the Nazi era in the, in the 1930s when everyone suddenly decided that that was actually a really bad thing that Charlemagne, instead of being known as the great, he should have been known as a slaughterer. Okay. And that actually this Saxon king that he murdered should have been the one known as the great. And there's this place um, in Germany, I think it's called Verden. Anyway, um, at this place where they erected a memorial at Sachsenhain and they like to the victims. So to the Saxons that Charlemagne had killed. Mm -hmm. So for a little while there in Nazi Germany, it was like not cool to admire Charlemagne because he had like supposedly murdered these quote unquote like pure Germans you know right yeah but I guess apparently the Nazis sort of then decided the best thing to do was to go with popular opinion and I'm not sure what it was like then I know from living in Germany now and while well, I used to live in one of Charlemagne's capital cities so he's like a very big figure and people want to like him so um, Nazis obviously decided it was easier to sort of rehabilitate Charlemagne in the eyes of the German people so and um, they certainly celebrated his 1200th um, birthday in 1942 and yeah they decided that he was a very good symbol of German unification and then there was actually um, an SS unit that was named after Charlemagne. It was named the Charlemagne Regiment. Okay. And then so so without like this like kind of solid period of history, like that's why it, that's why it can be named the third, right? Because that because this is known as the the beginning of it all. And then you have yeah, the second sure. and then the third one is trying to like, is it trying to get back to the first or is it just trying I to continue so. on a legacy? I think, do you think it can be both? I mean, because I think that what Hitler was doing by using this word Reich or mm. empire mm -hmm. was placing his third Reich in this bigger historical concept 
concept <laughs> context context yeah. yeah yeah um in the historical context of you know the first and the second reich so in a way it's continuity but what he also did was kind of use the holy roman empire and charlemagne's uh, empire as a basis for almost like territorial revisionism so they use that to kind of justify to say like well we deserve to have this land back because this once belonged to a german empire because mm-hmm. the holy roman empire again if i can just go back to that although it was like largely in modern day germany also a really important center of that was prague i mean this is why there were so many german speaking peoples into what we now think of as like eastern europe mm-hmm. so like czech republic right um, Prague and the Kingdom of Bohemia was a really important part of the Holy Roman Empire. And when in 1939, when Bohemia came back to the Reich, mm. aka, you know, was taken over by Nazi Germany, um, the uh, supposedly the Nazis said, well, yeah, we've now successfully like recreated the First Reich because in their minds that part of Europe belonged to the German Empire. I think it's both sort of a legacy continuation, but also a recreation. Mm -hmm. So I think we got a pretty good overview of how the First Reich relates to the third one. So is there anything that you want to say in closing? Yeah, I guess just that um, if we can go back to this concept of the First, Second and Third Reichs and the man who actually coined this, um, he was a German cultural critic named Arthur Muller Vandenbroek and he wrote this book in the 1920s called The Third Reich and just what I thought was really interesting looking into it is uh, he actually had a very dire prediction or foreshadowing Um, he said that in the pursuit of a third empire Germany might perish Mm. yeah well you know I know Germany's still here, but definitely, yeah, predicting some kind exactly. of demise. Yeah, well. Germany did not perish, which is a very good thing. But um, obviously he foresaw that the pursuit of yeah. another great empire might bring a lot of um, devastation. So that's really interesting. And, that uh, and of course, um, I'm not going to get off your podcast about Charlemagne <laughs> without sharing a fun fact. Please, please give me your best one. It's, you know, it's really hard to choose um, just one. But something I really, really like is that thanks to Charlemagne, he actually uh, invented what we know as the Carolingian script, a.k.a. lowercase. Like that became sort of the blueprint for lowercase printing. So before Charlemagne, we only had uppercase writing. So would he be the reason why we all have to learn like cursive handwriting in primary school? (laughs) Possibly. Oh, gosh, my knowledge isn't actually that detailed. Um, But yeah, essentially, he was a very big proponent of education. You know, he had monks uh, just spending all their days copying Latin texts. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) So, yeah, we can blame Charlemagne for cursive, I guess. (laughs) Well, on that awesome fact, we'll end it there. Thanks so much. And I'll speak to you soon. Thank you for having me. Anytime. Okay, so Eva, we just heard about the First Reich from Kim. And uh, if you can just explain what the Second Reich is and how we actually ended up 
um, needing a third one? Sure. Um, the second Reich actually is called also the Kaiserreich, so it's the German Empire. And it existed from 1871, which was when Germany won the war against the French, until 1918, which is when Germany lost the First World War. And um, the Second Reich, actually, it was uh, a constitutional monarchy. So there was an emperor, it was Wilhelm I, Friedrich III, Wilhelm II, that's what they were called. But there also was uh, yeah, a constitution and there was a parliament, the so-called Reichstag, and a chancellor, an imperial chancellor. Um, I don't know, one of the most famous ones was Otto von Bismarck, so some people might, might know that name. And what was really special about the Second Reich is that it was the first German national state so um, that hasn't existed before. And actually it was, it, it consisted of 25 states, which were mainly also monarchies. So for example, the kingdom of Prussia, the kingdom of Bavaria uh, and some republics also, which were independent. So, but, so the Germany that we know now was much bigger then. It was much bigger. It was today's Germany plus um, Elsass-Lothringen, which now belongs to France, so it was a part of nowadays France, plus um, parts of what is now Poland, basically. Okay. So mainly it was, um, yeah, it stretched far more um, in the east. Okay. Um, it was a lot bigger, yeah. So those were 25 independent states, but they joined under one common government, and this was a brand new thing. Um, and also this has shaped the whole political culture um, in a whole new way. So for example, the whole party system became really differentiated through that. So there were socialists, there were Catholics, there were nationalists. Um, and of course, all these political tendencies and movements have already existed before, but now they really established themselves. And also people really saw themselves as belonging to one specific party or movement. Okay. Um, so if you were a Catholic farmer, for example, you would definitely um, identify yourself with the Catholic party. Or if you're uh, from the working class, you would definitely identify with the socialists. And this was not a fluid system. So this was your party for life. Um, and that was a very new development. Ah, okay. So, so during this period, you really have the establishment of people aligning themselves to a uh, to a particular political party because of how they exactly. identify exactly okay. yeah. yeah the whole identification just became much stronger and um also there were other things happening at that time if you think about it newspapers suddenly were accessible to most people so also information about politics and about what was going on in the world so the whole mass media um thing yeah, suddenly was, was accessible to so many people. And that was also a, a very new development. Um, also the whole um, election system changed. So now all men over 25 could vote. They could participate. So suddenly politics was somehow for everyone. I mean, yeah. it, we know it was not for everyone because women, for example, were excluded, but it was, yeah, it was for the masses. It was not only for the elites anymore. 
and um, everyone could participate and discuss and this really changed how people saw politics and how they saw politicians and how they saw the state um, they felt like they had a say um, <clears throat> yeah and I think another really important thing that changed during or because of the German Empire the Second Reich is that yeah as I said it was the first national state and so now unity was very important. It was a very important value. Before that, it was independence or freedom. And now unity was the thing and um, the whole possibility to identify yourself with the nation as a whole that became ah. very strong during that time, yeah. actually. And this, of course, also already at that time led to othering so that um, and, and to resentments against minorities, um, in that case, mainly Jews or Polish people. Okay, so why, why if the if the new thing is like unity, why is othering now becoming a, a thing, and why specifically Jews and Polish people? Because they weren't really seen as a part of this new German national state as i said the whole nationalist tendencies really be, be became stronger through that okay and 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 they weren't seen as a, as a part of that and it, it really was a seed for more radical nationalist mm -hmm. tendencies um and i know I, I mean i can talk a bit about the situation of jewish people for example during the second reich because it really shows that restrictions already existed at that time because uh, sometimes I, I feel like many people don't really know that and they think that Hitler or the Nazi party just came up with that and just created those kind of laws and everything but mm -hmm. actually it has already existed I mean since forever but also during the Second Reich for example regarding jobs or career um, there were no Jewish ministers in the parliament for example um, during the Second Reich, and it was made very hard for them to become professors at university or judges. So ah, many okay. Jewish men were lawyers, but it was super hard for them to become uh, judges. And also, it was really forbidden or not impossible for them to achieve some high, yeah, high ranks in military, for example. Mm -hmm. And military was super important at that time. And, and if you wanted to have some kind of status as a man, so <clears throat> this was already very much restricted for, for Jews at that time. So I think that also explains a lot because people sometimes feel like, but why would people buy into this whole Nazi ideology? It's, I mean, you can really see there it's because it wasn't new to them. Yeah. It was normal. It was normal for people that Jews didn't have access to all areas of life. Okay, so it's like when they say this kind of age-old anti-Semitism thing, like it didn't, it didn't just start with Hitler. There's a reason why he hardlined on this. Exactly, exactly. It all, I mean, yeah, these kinds of repressions and restrictions really existed before. Yeah. Okay. Um, and 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 so in that sense, um, and, and and this plus the whole really nationalist um theme really i think yeah set the scene for for what yeah came later right and yeah i mean it didn't exist for too long actually the second reich as i said it already ended in 1918 so as we all know the second world war uh, sorry the first world war didn't go so well for germany <laughs> also second world war ii but 
<laughs> so uh, in, I think, the autumn of 1918, already many politicians really wanted to convince the emperor to surrender um, because Ger the German empire was basically defeated, it was clear. But um, yeah, it didn't really happen. And so this was already a bit of the attitude in general. And then the catalyst was that um, the German Navy was supposed to fight a battle against the Royal Navy in November 1918. Okay. And I mean, it was clear already they had no chance. This was a, this was a lost battle. So the soldiers became mutinous. They rebelled. Um, they started a revolution that really quickly spread all over the empire. So everywhere, soldiers, workers were um, rebelling. It really evolved into some kind of civil war, actually. What? I didn't know that. It was really, it was a phase of, I mean, I'm really telling it in a very, very short yeah, way now. Obviously. But actually, yeah. I mean, you can talk forever about I mean, it was really a short time span, but so much happened and there was total political chaos in, in, in the German Empire. It was really, there were political turmoils everywhere. Bavaria became uh, an independent republic for a few days, for example, and um, a lot of crazy stuff happened. Um, so the imperial chancellor, the Reichskanzler at that time, it was Max von Baden, he then just announced the abdication of, of the emperor. This was unauthorized. He just did it because, because the emperor would not abdicate. Okay. So, that, so they were like, we have to stop this. So that's how the monarchy fell. That's just... basically how the monarchy fell. fell. They, just, they just announced the abdication. They just did it. The emperor didn't want to. And... On the very same day, even the first German Democratic Republic was announced, um, the Weimarer Republic. And um, fun fact is that it also was uh, 9th of November, because I think in your last episode, you also talked about. 9th yeah, Kristallnacht. Yeah, yeah. So exactly on the same. So what happened on that date? Yeah, on that date, the, uh, the application of the emperor was announced and also the first German Democrat Democratic Republic and was this, announced. Right, so this is the republic that comes before the Third Reich that Hitler's trying to build. Exactly, exactly. There was a Democratic Republic for a very short time between the Second Reich and the Third Reich, actually. And... Um, yeah, that was the 9th of November also. So that's a very fateful day for German history, actually. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so then the emperor, he went to Dutch exile and he tried to restore monarchy in Germany, actually. He didn't give up so easily. But yeah, as we know, not successful. And um, I think, yeah, he died in 41 without ever returning to Germany again. Wow, okay. Uh, so, so we can really understand from the Second Reich that that really set up the kind of political feeling. And then a, a huge catalyst is the defeat in World War I. As I said in the last episode about the, the Treaty of Versailles, the peace treaty and how much unrest that caused. And um, yeah, now it makes much more sense that, that Hitler would would be 
especially if he was um, a soldier, would go into like a political like group and then try to um, try to implement some kind of change on a but from a nationalist angle. Yeah, because now we also already talked about it that that uh, the German Empire would, was also much bigger before the First World mm -hmm. War, yeah. and then they lost so many um, of those areas. And then, uh, yeah, I think this tendency was very strong to say we we want to be that great again in this uh, this huge empire, and um, because it wasn't that long ago at that time, people could still remember. Yeah, of what course, it was like, like it was like within their lifetime. Which I think exactly. is re is really important to know because from an outsider's perspective, as sorry, <laughs> I can't speak specifically as someone who hasn't actually studied that history. I only really know from kind of the end of World War One, so I didn't really know what what it was like before all of that. I kind of I kind of view it as oh yeah, like the defeat of World War One was it, and then just this man comes out of nowhere and just builds this political party that is horrific and then the second world war happens and then so does the holocaust exactly that, that i mean that is the narrative often and yeah. um so that's why i think it's actually super interesting because also yeah most people who then voted for hitler grew up with the emperor they grew up in the in, in the in the german empire yeah so of course that really shaped them and and their view and on the state also and on military and yeah everything wow that's super interesting all right thank you for explaining that <laughs> you're very welcome it was my podcast premiere and uh yeah. yay first time i'm glad <laughs> it was with me <laughs> <laughs> yeah me too <laughs> So now that we've heard from Eva and Kim and we have a bit of an overview of how um, Germany kind of came to or Hitler came to wanting to establish the Third Reich, I will now go into explaining about it. So Nazi Germany or the Third Reich, which means the Third Realm or Empire, was the Nazis attempt to establish a successive, um, a successive empire to the two that we've just heard about. So the Holy Roman Empire, the first one, and the German Empire, which was the second one. And this was, to, um, the Third Reich was referred to by Hitler and the Nazis as the Thousand Year Reich. However, it luckily, albeit too long anyway, it only lasted 12 years. And if we remember from last week how Hitler turned Germany into a one-party state by making it illegal for there to be any other political parties, this enabled Germany to very quickly become a totalitarian state. So this is when nearly all aspects of life are completely controlled by the government. So not just politics, but all aspects of social life, both public and private. So, for example, the media, education, science, which was incredibly important, the economy, right down to even determining the morals that citizens are supposed to have. So... This totalitarian regime um, that was now aiming to establish a Third Reich considered the Germanic people to be the master race, so the purest branch of the Aryan race, um, so Caucasian, European. And racism and Nazi eugenics um, 
which is what the Nazis understood as national socialist racial hygiene. So believing that German people could be biologically improved by selecting um, by selective breeding and getting rid of those that were deemed racially inferior. So this was central. This was central to the. This was a central ideological feature of the regime. So when it comes to Jewish people, they're viewed as like the complete enemy to this racial hygiene. So we can begin to understand like why Jewish people from very early on were a target of hatred for the Nazis because it actually completely went against their ideology and what they're actually aiming for, which is racial purity. Um, so not only did the Third Reich aim to be racially pure, but Lebensraum or living room was needed for Germany's expansion. So territory was incredibly important if the Nazis were going to actually establish this Reich. So they focused their attention on Eastern Europe in particular and then the Soviet Union. Now, they tried to acquire this Lebensraum by just seizing land that they wanted so Austria and almost all of Czechoslovakia as it was then known um, was occupied in 1938 and 39 and then infamously um, Hitler decides to invade Poland on the 1st of September 1939 and this launches World War II in Europe so I'm not going to go into detail about the war the ins and outs of it but by early 1941 Germany actually controlled a lot of Europe and in in 1941 Hitler decides that it's time to take on the Soviet Union which he does um but this was poorly executed and I'm talking walking into Russia in the middle of winter poorly executed and yeah, so he walks into the Soviet Union and then after that, the US enters the war. And so by 1943, the Nazis are actually losing the Eastern Eastern Front, I think largely due to the fact that they invaded the Soviet Union and just weren't prepared for it. And they're gradually being pushed back west by the Allies. And this leads to the eventual surrender of Nazi Germany. And with that, the fall of the Third Reich. So after this, the Allies start a process of denazification to rid German and Austrian society, the culture, press, economy, judiciary, so everything that um, I said earlier, um, and especially the poli- politics of Nazi ideology, um, by removing Nazis from power and disbanding organizations so disbanding organizations like the SS and the Hitler Youth for example and of course by completely like depowering the military as well um and also as I said last week at the end of the war it um the Nazi party is actually made illegal um and that is that then marks like the complete end of this attempt at well, it is the third. It is known as the Third Reich, but this attempt at a thousand-year Reich, and I would actually say it's it's probably contested how well the denazification progress um, process was actually implemented. Because, for example, if you have a totalitarian totalitarian regime and you have a government that has completely taken control of 
so many facets of public and private life how by simply just like removing people from power do you can you is that actually a a denazification or is much more needed so yeah that's a very brief and concise overview of what the third third Reich was so as I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, I did just want to talk briefly about Eva and Kim's projects, um, which I worked really closely with them on when we were all um, taking part in the Innovation Hub for Holocaust Education last year. And um, so firstly, Kim's project. So she's from Australia and she's actually developing a food tour, which will tell the story of um, Jewish immigration and Um, Jewish life in Melbourne and her project is called Cafe Australia and if you want to you can follow her on um, Instagram it's at Cafe Australia official and you can see um, what she's working on at the moment the project has actually due to COVID um, been put on hold at the moment because she is a tour guide by trade but obviously none of that's happening at the moment but if you're interested in food and specifically learning about um, different communities and yeah learning about the history of a people just in a different way I would urge you to take a look at that and then Eva her project is an augmented reality app so an AR app and it's actually based here in Berlin so it tells the story of Jewish history in Berlin by um, visiting the places um, um, important historical sites to the Jewish community um, that was in Berlin and then telling you about the the history of it basically and I would urge you to check that out because it's actually really cool um and her Instagram is voids underscore history. And yeah, if you just um, follow both of them and you can kind of just see some new up and coming projects and how, um, yeah, what they're doing to kind of teach people about the Holocaust and specifically Jewish life. So I'm just going to do a short in the news section because I did actually find that... um, The city of Nuremberg has actually opted to conserve some Nazi party rally grounds after debating whether they should or not for a long time. And I'm just going to read you a bit from the article. So the rally grounds were actually um, designed by Albert Speer, so Hitler's chief architect. And it says in the article that it comes amid preparations to mark the 75th anniversary of the post-war trials of Adolf Hitler's top henchmen. After decades of debate, the city will restore the site by 2025. And it then goes on to say the never completed classical Congress Hall is the second largest Nazi era building that's still standing. And this is a quote from Florian deal director of the documentation center party rally grounds um they say the buildings that still exist today are a document of the national socialist era this means that as architectural artifacts they represent the ideal image that the national socialist regime had of the third reich the question of what to do with these painful relics has troubled nuremberg for decades and now they're to become a living monument with a lasting message of never again so that's just a little something that's in the news and we can see how um, still today uh, 
what to do with it, what to do and how, how we're going to understand the past is still really relevant. So, yeah, that's it for this week's episode. Um, if you've enjoyed it, please subscribe, rate and review. This helps me um, helps me become more visible to more people, hopefully on some kind of iTunes or Spotify chart sometime in the near future. And yeah, with that, I think I will call it a day. So keep it pushing and I'll see you next time. Ciao.